Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence and we enter in your courts with praise, with thanksgiving, with hearts of gratitude for your good to us, for your lavish love towards us. Oh, Lord, for your constant faithfulness to us. Lord, we have come into your presence in anticipation and expectation to hear from you, from Holy Spirit to breathe on us, to light a flame in our hearts to burn for you. So that as John 1, 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, help us to remember remind us, help us to reflect that your book reveals to us who you are. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, the fire by night. Deuteronomy, he's Israel's guide. Joshua, he's salvation's choice. Judges, he's Israel's guard. In Ruth, the kingsman's redeemer. First and second Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of broken walls and lies. In Esther's, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. Ecclesiastes, he's the time and season. In Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Lamentations, the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, the call from sin. Daniel, the stranger in the fire. Hosea, the forever faithful. Joel, the spirit's power. Amos, the strong arms that carry. Obadiah, the Lord, our Savior. Jonah, the great missionary. Micah, the promise of peace. Nahum, our strength and shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he brings revival. In Haggai, he restores that which was lost. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is God, the Messiah. In the Spirit-filled book of Acts, he's the reigning fire from heaven. In Romans, he's the grace of God. Corinthians, the power of love. Galatians, freedom from the curse of sin. Ephesians, our glorious treasure. Philippians, the servant's heart. Colossians, he's God and the Trinity. Thessalonians, our calling king. In Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he's our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, the everlasting courage. In James, the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, our faithful shepherd. In John and June, he's the lover coming for his bride. And in Revelation, in the end, when it's all over, said and done, when time is no more, he is and will always be the King of Kings, 
the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, Son of Man, Lamb of God, the Great I Am, the Alpha and Omega, God and Savior. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Lord, you are our hope and you, we give you praise that you have overcome the world and darkness and we are victorious and we anticipate your return as we occupy until the trumpet sounds in jesus name be glorified we love you we praise you we thank you god for who you are god you are holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and you you're coming for us jesus you are coming for us May our hearts be ready as we anticipate your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, thank you all for joining us for worship this morning. Um, it's good to be in the presence of the Lord with God's people. Let's let the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's uh, fifth grade and younger. They can go out in the lobby, meet their teachers, and head the rest of the way up to their classes. Parents, you can pick them up at the end of the service. A few things going on in the life of the church to make you aware of. Um, I hope you grab these on your way in periodically. There's a few things on this. Um, we just kind of give our highlights on here. Um, please continue to pray for our student ministry. We have a few students that are gone um, today and will be coming back this afternoon, but youth will meet as normal this evening, 530 to 730 here on campus. Our next men's ministry breakfast is uh, September the 30th. We started a huge initiative with our men's ministry um, this past week with Better Man. And if you have any interest in that and you missed week one, uh, please come and see me today. And I'd love to talk to you about that. It's not too late to join one of those groups. For our women's ministry, we have quad groups that are up and running. If you signed up and you haven't heard from somebody um, about a meeting time for your quad group, lots of the groups have already met. So if you haven't heard anything and you signed up, talk to Carol McFarlane um, today and we'll, we'll get that figured out for you. And then also in women's ministry, we have a uh, Wednesday morning Bible study uh, starting up for the fall um, this week at 945. It's the one led by um, Jan Hare and Rhonda Brown, and it will meet in the backstage um, behind me, 945 on Wednesday. Come and talk to me or talk to one of them if you want some more information about that. And then saving the date, uh, uh, still... Uh, several weeks out, but November the 4th, we want you here for a Saturday focused on prayer. We'd love to have you. We'll give you some more details as those become available. Um, turn with me to John chapter 20, and we're going to continue to reflect on Jesus and the way he encounters people face to face. We've skipped a lot of Jesus's life and ministry over the last couple of weeks. We're, we're really just hitting uh, four highlights four really significant face-to-face -face interactions that Jesus has with people. John 3, Nicodemus, a couple weeks ago, we saw how Jesus interacted with a religious mindset. Uh, last week, we saw how Jesus interacted with a desperate father and a desperate woman who was um, facing a disease and, and impurity. And today, we'll see Jesus and his doubting disciple. But I'm going to ask you as we start, have you ever been a t a told a story and you thought, yeah, I'm not sure I believe that. 
some of you are just by nature skeptical, and that's an okay thing. This message is for you. Some of you are by nature just the people that believe anything that you're ever told. That's fine too. That's not me. That's not Thomas. But there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. But this message really deals with people that need a little bit more information. In my family, I am the skeptic. I am the one that is slow to believe. And in the dynamic of my family, I've come to notice that my kids tell me a lot of stories that just aren't true. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll make a disclaimer here. I am allowed in my household to tell sermon stories about my family as long as it makes the kids look good and me look bad. That's the, that's the rule. So before I go too far, just give you a, a hint on how this one ends. Now, I recognize that when my, t- my kids tell stories, sometimes I'm to blame because I do that too. I love to mess with them and tell them things that are not true and get them to believe me. But then my kids, they'll often come home and they'll tell me, particularly when they're, they're given an assignment, right? This is, this is what happens with kids, right? You give them an assignment, go and do this. Go clean your room. Go make your bed. Go put your clothes away. Go do your homework. And, and it just, I get this sneaking suspicion sometime like, that was, that was just too fast. I just don't, I don't really believe that you actually completed what you were told to do in that amount of time. Now, Jericho, as a for instance, Jericho tends to be distracted by literally anything. And so if you give Jericho an assignment, it tends to take significantly longer than you would think because he just has comes up with other things to do along the way. And it's fine, we just have to remind him. It's a stage, we get it. But Jericho, there's, there's one thing that sticks out with Jericho. We say, Jericho, okay, it's reading time. Go read your book. And he'll sit down and he'll read. And usually he's quiet for a few minutes. We're like, oh. And then he just keeps reading and reading. And he comes up and he says, I'm, I'm done. I was like, Jericho, you get distracted with everything in your life. There's no way you read that book in that time. It's just not possible. But here's the sneaky thing about Jericho that I've recognized. He's a crazy good reader and a crazy fast reader. So I cannot tell you how many times skeptical, doubtful dad has come and said, you read that book faster than you can brush your teeth. There is no way you read that book, Jericho. So Jericho, tell me everything that happened. And I cannot tell you how many times I'm the idiot in the story, where I sit down with my nine-year-old and I say, Jericho, tell me what happened, because I don't believe you read that whole thing in that amount of time. Tell me what happened in this chapter. And he goes through. He was reading this, this, this book about, his chapter book on Davy Crockett, and he gave me Davy Crockett's life story across 12 chapters, and I was like, I, I would just never ask you this question again. You, you get a pass now for reading for the rest of your life. Because there's this thing about Jericho that anything else, I'm still going to be skeptical. But, but there's, isn't there this thing about us, about people that some of us are just wired like that? Maybe you've heard really good news about something, about someone, and you thought, man, that's just too good to be true. Or maybe you've heard really bad news about something or someone, and you're like, man, I really hope that's not true. Different personality types approach those things differently. Some of us are more prone to believe the bad things we hear about people, right? 
easy to believe something bad about somebody and hard to believe something good about somebody. Jesus encounters in the passage for this week somebody who is like me, skeptical. Somebody who, when he's first told this great news, this great story, just doesn't want to believe it, doesn't want to hear it. And in this conversation that Jesus has with Thomas, his disciple, we see a pattern of how Jesus deals with doubts and deals with questions. And so it would be really helpful for us to all recognize our place in the story of Scripture. I was talking to a woman in our church on the way in this morning. She said it was so powerful to her to think about the, the woman that had the issue of blood last Sunday as we unpacked that story. We saw how there was this big crowd gathered all around and Jesus narrowed in for a face-to-face conversation with this particular woman, cut through all of the noise of all the other person and wanted to engage with her personally. That's actually what happens in this story too. It's what happens so often in the life of Jesus. There's always people around. In fact, one of the only situations, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's one of the only situations where it feels like it's just Jesus and one other person. Most any situation in Jesus' life, it's, there's a lot of people. But Jesus has the opportunity to go face-to-face, one-on-one with people. And when he goes one-on-one with people, there's a pattern there. There's a paradigm that we pay attention to as disciples where we look and we say, okay, if I'm to follow Jesus, Maybe I have some of the same questions. Maybe I have some of the same issues. It's really popular to call Thomas Doubting Thomas. And what we know him for most in his life's story is this particular interaction with Jesus where everybody else believes and he's the one that doesn't. But recognizing Thomas is is a man that's a lot like us. Somebody who's heard good news, probably wants it to be true. But he's an empiricist. He wants experiential knowledge. He wants to see, touch, and feel for himself. He struggles with just hearing secondhand information from even his closest friends that says, Thomas, you have to believe this. He doesn't. This morning, there are people in this room that have questions like that, that have doubts. Maybe it's a doubt about the resurrection. Could that really happen? Maybe it's a doubt about the whole Jesus story. I'm not sure that's true. Maybe it's a doubt about the whole book. Can we really trust that these manuscripts that were translated across multiple continents over thousands of years, can we trust that we have the word of God as God gave it to man? Or are these just translations of translations of translations and we, we don't know what they say? There's all sorts of questions you might have. Maybe you're doubting the goodness of God. Maybe you're doubting because of your circumstance. Because doubts, as we set the stage this morning, doubts can be intellectual. Sure, that's, that's tackled in one way. When you have intellectual doubts, we can have a conversation about that. We can debate. We can research. We can find the answers. The most difficult doubts are not the intellectual ones. They're the emotional ones. Because those doubts hurt. Because you can doubt the, the words on the page. You can doubt the miracle. But when you doubt the goodness of God, when you doubt God's care and concern for you, it's a whole different category of doubts. But I think what we'll see this morning is Jesus is open to either, and Jesus wants us to find our answers. And ultimately, he wants us to follow him through those questions. 
So we'll be in John 20, verses 19 through 29. We'll be talking about doubts. We'll unpack this passage in three steps, basically. We'll talk about the role of doubt, because doubt isn't actually always a bad thing. We'll also talk about the human solution, and we'll talk about Jesus' solution. So starting in verse 19 of John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Let me stop right there and give a little bit more background. John 20, actually it's going to be really interesting the next two weeks. I hope it works the way I want it to work. We're going to be in John 20 for, for two weeks. We're going to go a little bit out of order here because I wanted to really talk about Thomas this week and I wanted to talk about another encounter next week. Earlier on in John 20, we see the story of the resurrection. Jesus appears already to Mary Magdalene and we see that Jesus has resurrected from the tomb. The, the grave is empty. Peter and John have both been there to investigate and Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene in John 20, 11 and following and said, go tell the disciples. So in verse 19, there's already this whisper, this conversation. Has he risen? Peter and John are in the room. They say there, there's no body in that tomb. And Mary has already come back and told them, no, he really is risen. I saw him. He spoke to me. He knew my name. I didn't recognize him, but he knew me. So, they've been in that room for three days, grieving, wandering, keeping the door locked, worried that the same people that killed Jesus were going to be coming after Jesus' closest followers. So the door was locked, and in verse 19, here comes Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad that when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is, as I said, an, an empiricist. He is looking for an experience with Jesus. He is looking to touch and feel. He is looking to weigh the claim that his buddies have given. And think about it. If you were Thomas, what would your reaction be? I've been here just as long as these other guys. Why me? Why am I the one that missed this? Surely they're just so emotional. Surely they're overcome with emotions to such a degree that they just have had this this incredible hallucination and something weird is happening but there's no way that Jesus showed up with holes in his hands and holes in his side and said peace be with you and then breathed on them and God came to them in a new and special way when Jesus the dead guy breathed on them don't pick on Thomas he makes a lot of sense in his questions and in his doubts now you can say Thomas 
is this guy that we, we sort of, here's what's happened. We have this negative view of Thomas because we all know him as Doubting Thomas. And we've heard that our whole lives. We've heard that at all the time we've grown up in church. We had the Sunday school lesson on J Doubting Thomas. You've heard sermons on Doubting Thomas. Every time you hear the word Thomas, the name Thomas in Scripture, you think of him as Doubting Thomas. John it does him a great favor in this passage, by the way, because John identifies Thomas as the twin. So that's how the disciples knew him. We know him in American Christianity 2,000 years later as Doubting Thomas. Recognize this was not his reputation or the way they knew him among those disciples in the room. He was their friend. He had been with them. He had been just as faithful as the other guys. And he was known because he had a twin brother. But we don't know much more about him other than that. So there's this really unfortunate thing about Thomas that we know him just for his doubt. But let's talk about doubt. And is it really all that bad? Doubt is simply the uncertainty that exists when you hear something, but you're not sure whether you believe it or not. And doubt is useful. Doubt is important. Doubt is important to our legal system because if, if you are placed on a jury, the presumption of innocence is important that you assume that that person who has been arrested for a crime and put on trial is innocent until proven guilty. And, and the way you prove somebody guilty is you remove all reasonable doubt from the equation. So the beginning of this stage, you doubt matters. Doubt allows you to presume innocence. You doubt their guilt until the prosecution uh, removes all presence of doubt from your mind and brings you to the point where you are now convinced of something. Doubt is important for justice. We need doubt. Doubt is important for science. Just because you come up with a harebrained idea doesn't mean you can call it a scientific idea. It's a hypothesis until you prove it until you test it. So you have to doubt your own hypothesis. You can make an educated guess. You can, you can think, well, I think because of all this other stuff that I've seen, I think this makes sense, but I can't assume this makes sense unless I prove it. So you need doubt in order to know anything. You need doubt in order to know something is scientifically true. You need doubt in order to know that somebody is actually guilty of a crime or innocent of a crime. You need doubt. In parenting, again, one of the things that we encourage our kids to, we encourage them to doubt people, right? We call that stranger danger. You should doubt people you don't know. You should assume that people that you don't know are not always trustworthy. And just because somebody has a smile on their face and just because somebody seems kind doesn't mean you should just open up your life to them in every way. We teach that to our kids. Doubt protects the innocent. Doubt protects against mistakes. Doubt proves things to be true and not true. Doubt is important to our lives. So let's take a break on jumping on Thomas for his doubt. Thomas wants to know the truth. And so many of us, perhaps have those doubts that are either intellectual or emotional, saying, I'm not sure that God loves me. I'm not sure that God is good because I have all this data here 
that tells me I have suffered, I have lived a life of pain, I have lived a life of hardship and loss, people that I have loved have died, people that I have have tried to protect have suffered, I have lost more than I feel like I have gained, and those emotional doubts, they cut in, and they hurt our relationship to the one true God. But then on the other end, the intellectual doubts. Some, some of you may come and have the real questions. That's where Thomas was. Thomas was seeking to have knowledge through experience. And think about all that he had experienced. You know, last week we talked about the woman who was healed of the bleeding issues like that. We talked about the woman that, or the little girl that was raised from the dead. Think about all that he had seen. Was Thomas there when water was turned into wine? Was Thomas there when Jesus walked on water? Was Thomas there when he calmed the storm? Was Thomas there when he called Lazarus out of the tomb? Was Thomas there when he caused the lame to walk, when he caused the blind to see? Was Thomas there for all of those things he had seen? At times, he had often touched. Like, I I can think of Thomas. I imagine Thomas in the years ahead of time, like, sitting on the boat. Jesus is walking on water. Peter tries to walk out, and I could see Thomas, like, looking over the water, like, did that just happen? Like, maybe stick a toe in yourself? Like, no, that's real water. I don't know how that whole thing just happened, but I saw it, and then I touched the water to make sure that there wasn't anything, there wasn't a sandbar there secretly. That's the kind of guy Thomas is. I could see Thomas being the guy that when that lame man is, is lowered through the, the ceiling of the house, and Jesus says, get up and walk, I could see Thomas being the one at the end just coming up and putting his arm around the guy being like, so tell me your story. How long were you not walking? And now you're just, you're, you're good? We need people like Thomas that ask the questions, that find the answers. So wherever you are, I want, I want you to know this, whether your doubts are intellectual or emotional, or whether you're just so in love with Jesus that you're good, The kingdom of God takes all kinds. The people with questions and the people that have already answered their questions have come to the point of faith. There's nothing wrong with being the person that says, show me the facts. I want to make an informed decision. So as we continue here to find the solution to doubt, both at a human perspective and at a godly perspective, maybe it's a time to just actually take take pen, take a pencil, scribble out. Are there any questions you still have? Are there any doubts you still have? Because the goal for today is to leave with a plan to address those doubts, to address those questions. You may not answer all of them today, but are you like Thomas, where you have a plan of, this is what I need in order to find my answer? Because the danger is, doubts become facts over time. You doubt something long enough, you believe it to be untrue. If you doubt something and you never find the answer and you, you just throw up your hands and say, well, I just, I just never will find that out, what happens is you end up believing that thing is not true. Think about it this way. You're in a relationship with a person and they do this thing that you're like, I don't know why they did that. There was this weird personal interaction that kind of blew me off. It kind of felt... Like, it was unkind or rude, and you kind of have this seed of doubt into this person's action towards you. What happens if that goes unaddressed? It festers. 
and you hold that against that person. And that leads to bitterness. Now, it could have just been a simple miscommunication. It could have been a misunderstanding. But doubts that go unaddressed become facts. I doubt that person's character. I have questions about it. I don't know why he or she did that. That was kind of weird. And if you don't address it and don't talk about it, all of a sudden you believe, that person's against me. They don't like me. It's personal. They did that to me. Doubts that go unaddressed harden and harden and harden. And then they become convictions. So if you have doubts about Jesus, doubts about the Bible, and you don't answer those questions, you don't even take the steps of discovering the answers, they'll harden. And you'll become completely unconvinced. You won't be doubting anymore. You will be hardened in your position of unbelief. So at least Thomas had a piece of a solution here. He says, this is what I need. I need the human solution. I need to touch his hands. I need to touch his side. So Jesus shows up. Jesus gives him the human solution. I think it's so interesting the way Jesus breaks in, literally breaks in. Twice, Jesus enters through a locked door in this story. First, there's everybody but Thomas in the room, and the door is locked because they're afraid of the Jews, and then Jesus just pops in through the locked door and everything. Now, one week later, one week later, Jesus says the exact same thing again, and the second time is particularly a visit for Thomas, so that Thomas can touch and see. Thomas can, can then respond in faith. But I want you to think about something here. Weed out Thomas, right? What about the other guys? What did Jesus tell them to do? Let's look back. John 20, verse 19. Jesus walks through a locked door, says, peace be with you. Verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas is the problem in the passage, remember? All the other guys are great. All the other guys respond in faith, right? Well, what are they doing a week after they are sent by Jesus with the Holy Spirit? What are they doing one week later? Same exact place. Same door locked, same fear of the Jews. Okay, we're going to make Thomas the bad guy. Let's look at the whole picture here. Everybody's struggling a little bit here. Everybody's still sort of on a, getting a false start to this whole making disciples thing. Everybody still has questions. I was reading commentaries on this over the last week and thinking, there are some people that just were, are convinced that when when Jesus breaks in the second time and Thomas immediately falls and says, my Lord and my God, it's because over the last week the disciples had whittled away at Thomas and Thomas had come to believe through a week of testimony from the disciples. I don't necessarily see that in the text, but I don't see the other side very clearly in the text either. I don't know what that week of conversations was, but think about it. You spend three years with this small group of people following your teacher around, he's dead and then he's not dead, and some of you know it, one of you has doubts, but then you spend the next week together debating in the room. What were those conversations like? Guys, do we lock the door? Do we not lock the door? Guys, do we stay? Do we go? A couple weeks ago, they, Jesus had sent them out to go find this room. 
they, didn't, they weren't hanging out in this room a couple weeks before. It was only when they started to observe the Passover that they entered into this room for the first time. They had to go find the room to observe the Passover. This wasn't a home base. But then for the last 10 days, all of a sudden, from the point of resurrection to the week after the resurrection, we're not one week after the resurrection when he appears to Thomas. For the last 10 days, they've done nothing but huddle together in this room. What's going on? What are we doing here? So they all have questions. It wasn't just Thomas. But Jesus walks through the locked door again. And he appears not just to Thomas, but the other disciples are there. And it's almost like Jesus needed all the guys to be together. All of those key disciples who would become known as apostles. He needed all of them together so they could all hear the same instructions, the same commissioning, so they could all go. And Jesus says, again, the first thing he says when he, when he pops in, he says, peace be with you. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now the human solution is there in verse 27. Jesus says, Thomas, I'm getting down on your level. Thomas, I'm, I'm letting you have what you asked for. You want to touch my hands. You want to touch my side. You can. Go for it, Thomas. Because what he's saying is, what he's doing in that is he's loving Thomas. He's loving Thomas at exactly where Thomas is at. He says, Thomas, I was the one that picked you three years ago. I was the one that called you to myself. I've known this about you the whole time. I've known that you wanted more information. I know that you asked all these questions. I know that you wanted the proof. So Thomas, it's okay. Touch my hands. Touch my side. See that I really am Jesus and I'm resurrected. But at the point where Thomas has the face-to-face -face encounter with the risen Jesus, what does he do? He gives a proclamation that, he, that, that the disciples haven't given at that point. Not with this kind of clarity. Fall to the ground and say, my Lord and my God. Jesus. You're going to hear these people say, people full of doubts and questions say well Jesus never really said he was God well the gospels is kind of muddy whether Jesus was God or not Thomas says he's God and Jesus says blessed are you and blessed are those that believe what you just said without seeing and without touching see Jesus affirms Thomas's confession of faith Jesus knows he's God, and Jesus wants the disciples to believe he is God, but he is, he is orchestrating these moments. He's orchestrating these face-to-face -face interactions so that we can have them recorded for us, for all of human history, so we can look back and see, this is what Jesus does with our doubts. He gets down on our level, and he says, touch my hands, and touch my side.
And yet real faith responds like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Thomas never ends up, according to the story, touching the hands and the side of Jesus. Because one glance at Jesus does it for him. He's convinced. He recognizes this is not just Jesus, the teacher I've been following. This is God himself. Because only God could raise himself from the dead. Jesus is gracious to Thomas. We don't know what Thomas was doing over that previous eight days. We don't know what, what was festering in his mind of unbelief and doubt. But Jesus shows great grace to Thomas to get down on his level and to say, I'm here. I'm here for you. But Jesus doesn't just give the human solution. He gives another solution. Because he, he says something else here, okay? I said that Jesus affirms Thomas's uh, confession of faith here. But there's also a, a rebuke in here for Thomas. In verse 29, he says, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Or, or go back to verse 27. The literal translation of verse 27, the last sentence there, after he says, put your finger here, see my hands, put, your, put out your hand and place it on my side, do not believe, but, or do not disbelieve, but believe. He's literally saying, stop disbelieving and start believing. Stop being active in your disbelief and change to belief. In the same way, it's a very similar construction to what he says to Jairus, the, the grieving father, in last week's passage. He said, do not fear, only believe. The literal translation is, stop fearing. Stop living in fear. Start believing. Same sentence, just with a little bit different wording. Stop living in disbelief. Live in belief. That's the call of Jesus. You can bring your doubts, but don't bring disbelief. You can bring your questions, but don't bring the arrogance that says, I know best, and I'm not going to listen to what Jesus says. You, you can bring your skepticism, but when the, the people that Jesus commissions to go out and tell the truth and tell other people about him tell you the truth, you have to listen. What is Thomas rebuked for in this passage? You can tell by comparison when you read verse 29, he says, blessed are they that believe without touching and seeing. Who is that? It's us. Have any of us had Jesus show up and say, here, touch my hand? Here, take, take your hand and put it in my side? Have any of us have that experience with Jesus? If, if you haven't, then you're in verse 29. Jesus is talking about you. Jesus is talking about me. Here's the important table setting that Jesus is doing for all the rest of church history, right here. This is so important for all of church history. What he says in verse 29 is he says, this is the last time. This is the last time there's going to be a generation of people on the earth that get to touch me and see me as Jesus, the Son of God in human form. This is the last time. Everybody else, it's going to be different. And you dudes in this room that have been locked away for eight days in fear since the last time you saw me, and you, Thomas, who has been walking in disbelief for the last eight days, your job now is to go and tell about what you've heard. 
your job now is to spread this message far and wide. And we know the story from there. Jesus isn't done preparing them, so he walks around the, the area um, for another 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven, and then he has them wait another 10 days back to the same room. And then they're praying in that same room. And 50 days after Jesus' death on the cross on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in fullness and really sends them out to where they cannot stay in that room any longer. But Jesus is still in the preparation process. It's not just that Jesus died and rose again and he sent them out and boom, they were ready. It still took 50 days of of preparation for them. It still took this period of really figuring out, reflecting, and waiting for the Spirit of God to fully come. Jesus sends the Spirit to the disciples other than Thomas at the beginning of this passage. But the fullness of the Spirit only comes at Pentecost, and that's where they go, and they speak the truth to everyone around. So what's Jesus' solution for doubt? It's actually his Holy Spirit. Think about it. Over those eight days, what would have been like to be Thomas? What would it have been like to be the only one that hadn't touched and hadn't seen? Here's what Thomas doesn't recognize and what the disciples themselves don't recognize. The biggest difference between Thomas and those other disciples, there's, there's 10 of them right now, plus Thomas, there's 11 total. Thomas and the other 10 guys, the biggest difference isn't actually their physical experience of whether they saw Jesus or not. Because there's something else here. Jesus' solution to doubt is here, and it's not touching, and it's not seen. Verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus' solution to our doubts and to our questions is his presence. For Thomas, there's a physical human Jesus that shows up in physical presence. But it's actually bigger than that. His story is bigger than that. Because this is when the disciples first receive any experience of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to the 10 disciples that are there in the room, and Thomas misses out not on the physical experience of Jesus. That's not even the best part. He misses out on the initial experience of the Holy Spirit because he wasn't there. And so all this time that Thomas has been the one in unbelief and the disciples have been trying to convince him, recognize that the disciples were, had the presence of the Holy Spirit, had the experience of the Holy Spirit on their side. And Thomas was the one that was left out. Why? Because God had bigger plans. Was it because God didn't like Thomas? Was it because Jesus didn't know Thomas wasn't there? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. But he needed that experience. He wanted to leave Thomas out because of us. Because for 2,000 years, people were going to have questions, and people were going to have doubts, and people were going to walk into a church building and say, is this a safe place to still have questions? Is this a safe place to still have doubts? Is this a safe place to still say that some parts of this story are weird? And I don't understand why I should drink Jesus' blood and I should eat Jesus' body. 2,000 years of Christians needed to know that Jesus was comfortable with your questions and comfortable with your doubts. And so too should we be as the church. A safe place for doubters. 
a safe place for searchers, for skeptics. And ultimately, Jesus' solution is when you've done the work to try to find the answers, the Spirit of God shows up. It's both. You need to do the human side. If you have questions and doubts, do the human side. Find those, find those answers. In the same way that, that Christians are really pro-medical care. If you're sick, go to a doctor. Go find the answers. Go find those physical answers. That's a really good thing. But as you're finding the physical answers to what's physically wrong with you, as you're finding the physical answers to the doubts and the questions you have about faith and whether or not you can believe in Jesus, don't forget the spiritual side of things. That ultimately, the Spirit of God guides us. The Spirit of God is that which is, is the power by which we are reborn, and He's the answer to all of our questions. So as a, when a Christian goes to the doctor, they seek out good medical care in prayer. They never emphasize just the physical without remembering the spiritual. And so when we search for answers to our questions about the Bible, about Jesus, ask those questions in a physical sense. I need to understand how the Bible was translated, because it's super weird to me. I need to understand how, what, what, is, what does this Lord's Supper thing really mean? Am I really eating bread that represents a body and drinking juice that represents blood or all that stuff? I have those questions. A- ask those questions in the physical sense. Remember that Jesus is answering at a spiritual level, at a deeper level. So all this boils down to a response. We, we need to respond to the Word of God this morning. And here's how I invite you to respond. Number one, look for answers. The worst thing you can do is doubt Jesus and do nothing about it. Because if you doubt Jesus and do nothing about it, if you doubt Scripture and do nothing about it, eventually that doubt is going to be hardened into real, strong unbelief. So look up your answers. Come ask, ask me. Ask somebody in the church. I had a woman this week that told me that her and um, one of her family members were reading through Scripture together, and they had all these questions, and she felt bad about sending me questions, so she kind of randomly would send me a few, and I said, it's fine. Just send me the long list. Just send me an email and send me all the questions. And I probably won't get to it that day, but at some point, I'll try to put together some time to respond to answers. Everyone has questions. Ask them. You can ask me, and if I don't have the answer, I'll help you find it or help you find somebody that does. We as a church have to be walking through questions with people. Every single one of us has a responsibility to the rest of us to help walk through those difficult questions and help find answers for the things that confuse us, that cause us to doubt, that cause us hurt and pain and grief. And that's why number two is so important. Share your answers. This isn't a pop quiz in middle school. You don't have to cover your paper and not share it with anyone because it's your private relationship with Jesus. No. What God tells us to do, what God told the disciples to do, go share it with other people. What Jesus is saying in John 20 is, if you guys, you 11 dudes, if you don't do what I'm about to tell you to do, nobody else is going to believe. Ever. Because this is the last generation. This is the last generation that's going to see Jesus appear. So you disciples, it's on you. You've seen, you've believed, now go. So for each of us, if you were once a doubter, if you were once a skeptic, if you once thought 
Jesus is nonsense, the Bible is nonsense, and religion is bad, and I don't want any part of it. If you were once that person, then Jesus is calling you, go share the answers that you found. Go share with other people what you learned along the way. And see what God can do with it. Doubters make great disciples. And doubters make great disciple makers. Because we don't need empty belief. We need strong belief. Doubters that find their answers are more strong in their convictions. And they can deal with the problems that the world throws at them. Those that come to believe easy are like the soil we see in the, in the parable of the soils. Where there's growth at first, and then that growth passes away because there's no roots. Do not be ashamed of your doubt, but address your doubt. Address your questions and help others along the way. The proof of this is in a few historical figures. Some recent, mostly recent are my examples. Doubters make great disciples. Doubters make great disciple makers. Lee Strobel set out to disprove Christianity and came to be one of the great apologists of our generation. Josh McDowell, very similar. C.S. Lewis, a generation before, didn't like the religion he grew up in, didn't like his experiences in it, thought that it was ridiculous. He, he described himself as a reluctant convert, but eventually became convinced despite his attempts to disprove. The influence that people who have questions and doubts can have on the generation that follows is so powerful. So I'm going to ask the band to join us, and I'm going to ask you to think about something for me. Two things. Number one, what are the questions you still have? What are the questions you still have? And number two, who are the people you know that have questions? And what can you do to help? Every one of us knows an unbeliever that has just had these questions that they've given up on finding answers to. And maybe you've tried before and you've kind of backed off over time, but is there more you can do? Is there more the church can do to help those skeptics find their answers, help those doubters move towards belief? As we respond to Jesus this morning, we remember that it was only because of the presence of the Holy Spirit that those disciples actually really believed that day. It was only through the Holy Spirit sent as fire on the day of Pentecost that resulted in them having the boldness of witness that they did. And so what we are really longing for this morning, more than intellectual answers to questions, we're longing for the presence of God to fall like fire, to enliven us, and to send us out for his glory into a generation of skeptics and doubters that need the hope of Jesus. Let's stand. We'll sing together.